Welcome to Understanding Congress, a podcast about the first branch of government. Congress is a notoriously complex institution, and few Americans think well of it. But Congress is essential to our republic. It's a place where our pluralistic society is supposed to work out its differences and come to agreement about what our laws should be. And that is why we are here to discuss our national legislature and to think about ways to upgrade it so it can better serve our nation. I'm your host, Kevin Kosar, and I'm a resident scholar at the American Enterprise Institute, a think tank in Washington, D.C. The topic of this episode is, who was the meanest man in Congress? My guest is Timothy J. McNulty, who taught journalism at Northwestern University and spent more than 30 years at the Chicago Tribune. During his years as a journalist, Tim was a national and foreign correspondent and also an editor. He logged untold hours paying attention to Congress and its many characters. And importantly, for the purposes of this episode of the podcast, he is the co-author of a terrific book, the meanest man in Congress, Jack Brooks and the Making of an American Century. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks very much for having me. Thank you for being here. Jack Brooks served in Congress from 1952 to 1994. He was called a number of names, the snake killer, the executioner, and the meanest man in Congress. Why? Well, each one had a very set reason in Congress. The, the snake killer was him using an old Texas term uh, on when he went after President Ford's early budget. And uh, he said to reporters then, well, the best time to kill a snake is when it's young. And, uh, and so that's what Ford did. The executioner is what... Uh, Nixon told uh, some of his aides because the uh, Brooks had been really a driving force in the Judiciary Committee. Uh, Peter Rodino was the head of it, but he was kind of taking it very slow, and uh, Brooks wanted to speed things up. Uh, and so that's what uh, bothered Nixon. Um, and then uh, the meanest man was something that Brooks had a great deal of uh, uh, took pride in that uh, because his questioning on the government affairs subcommittee uh, just struck fear into a lot of bureaucrats and corporate leaders who were called to testify because he he didn't uh, blanch at any kind of power or anything else whether it was Marine Corps generals or uh, heads of General Motors or uh, government um, uh, department heads, he just went after them. And so he got that meanest man title and, and wore it proudly. Yes, yes. Brooks himself, as you uh, detail in the, your book, is, uh, was a Marine. And he was in World War II, and he saw um, many intense things, and he endured a lot, both in his upbringing and before he got to Congress. But the listener might be wondering, if Brooks was so mean, how come voters reelected him every two years for four decades? Yeah. Well, of course, he uh, he looked after his district. I mean, no matter uh, what other public pronouncements or other publicity he got, uh, he was never that interested 
in being anything other than a congressman. And so people recognize that. He, of course, brought home a lot of government money, especially for infrastructure down in southeast Texas. So, But he also had his staff, which to be very aware of constituent uh, concerns, whether it was someone who's a mother who wanted her son um, to be able to come home because of an operation that she was having. He took care of things and made sure that his staff answered every letter, every message. And that's why I think he he also was a very kind of populist. And this is in a very different era that you alluded to, a populist, a Democrat in Texas. <laughs> and, and that was something that was seen as a as a a great achievement to be that uh, strong and to have both conservative ideas and also very ad- advanced or progressive ideas. And he also was able to uh, kind of meld his constituency. It was uh, business leaders, but it was also union leaders, and that was important in Southeast Texas, there on the border with Louisiana. So his uh, his pretty unique ability to get together members of the of the community, no matter what their title or station. Yes, you know you mentioned his knowledge of his district. One of the interesting, particularly interesting aspects um, of his district is that it had a it was in Texas, but it had a significant number of black citizens in it. Yeah, and Brooks unlike so many other Southern representatives, was progressive on racial issues and had a role, a big role in pushing forward Civil Rights Acts. Is that right? That's the Civil Rights Act of 1964 and and uh, and others. He uh, was very definite about that. He um, he was made sure that the black citizens in his district uh, were equally represented. And he. refused to sign on to any pronouncements from other Southern Democrats who were for segregation. So he uh, was one of the few that that refused to sign those kind of uh, pronouncements. His district was a one that encompassed everything from a town where Blacks were not welcome after dark to union leaders in Louisiana and and in Southeast Texas in Beaumont, um, where they were in charge uh, of a lot of um, a lot of the um, companies and and the uh, unions. Uh, so he he was able to kind of meld all these different groups together by uh, their self self interest. Yes, yes, it's a remarkable thing considering how intense the backlash towards desegregation was to be able to keep that balance and to fend off any um, primary challengers who might go after him. That was quite something. He learned a lot uh, in the Marines. He learned a lot uh, in his first uh, decade as uh, a congressman. He was also in the Texas state legislature. Sam Rayburn was one of his, was a mentor, and he talked about Rayburn talked about 
the first 10 years in Congress, you're kind of learning how things work. And then after that, you become effective. And uh, Brooks was a, indeed, kind of paid attention to his mentor. And he also was a, a friend on the Senate side of uh, Lyndon Johnson. And Johnson also, as president, they were very close. So he kind of put together things from his life, both in the in the Marines, in the uh, state legislature, and then in his early days in Congress to become very effective. Uh, and it was also, by the way, across the aisle. It wasn't as if they were saying, I'm only going to work on democratic issues. He had um, strong friends on both sides. For instance, uh, Bob Dole uh, one time was meeting with the uh, Democratic leaders in the Senate and the House, and he asked about, uh, they made an agreement, uh, which is the art of compromise that Congress is lacking now. But they made an agreement, and and Dole had told his uh, the Democratic uh, leaders that he wanted it in writing. And they asked, well, uh, you want a letter from Brooks? And he, Dole said, no, I don't need it from Brooks. His, Brooks, his, his word is good. And so that's the way he was considered on the Hill. Yeah, that gets to an interesting insight that your book uh, offers on how to be an effective politician. One thing certainly that Brooks had was doggedness. You know, the book relates the story of how he wanted, back when he was a state legislator, a community college to be become a full-blown university. Yeah. And he had to fight and fight and bargain. And the bill died at least one time, if not more. And he kept at it until he got it done. Yeah. And Another thing that he seemed to really get was that, yes, politics is about principles, but it is about people, trust, and wants. And in his career in the military, you describe how Brooks kind of positioned himself as a guy who was able to procure things that <laughs> yeah. were wanted. But it was like boots or whiskey or socks and was able to just build build support amongst those he served with is that right absolutely he uh, he he learned that you appeal to people on what they need and so whether it was as you said one time he he traded things uh that that uh, someone else uh, another unit might have needed and for 50 boot, fifty pairs of boots that his company needed, uh, or the, a shipment of whiskey came in on a ship, not identified as whiskey, but he was able to figure out uh, how to get that on land in one of the islands in the South Pacific and, 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 uh, and made good use of it. And, and uh, it wasn't for himself. He was doing it and learning how to um, how to manage things that for people's own self interest, uh, and that's why it was like his his um, part of his appeal was that it wasn't like he was uh, eager to make money or to get higher office. 
um, he was able to just say, "I here's what we need," and and figure out how to negotiate it, which is a and the, the idea of compromise. He he uh, recognized that that, and I think what Sam Rayburn and and uh, Lyndon Johnson also realized was that in order to be effective, you have to be willing to compromise. That's right. And speaking of Rayburn, who was Speaker of the House for a very long time, and Lyndon Johnson, who um, became Majority Leader in the Senate before uh, Vice President and President, Brooks spent time with them, which had the advantage of not only kind of conferring some of their power upon him, the fact that these two fellow Texans would listen to Brooks about certain things, but also he learned process. Mm -hmm. And that's another key aspect, I think, of being an effective legislator, figuring out how the wheels turn on Capitol Hill. Is that right? Absolutely. He he realized that uh, when he was, uh, for instance, there was a, a uh, a sign, it was a simple thing as a sign on a reservoir in Texas, and he wanted it named after Rayburn, with Rayburn's full name, and and they just said, no, we can't do that. Uh, it's different than the rest of them. And Brooks was able to say, here's what I'm going to do. <laughs> and, and he detailed who he was going to talk to, what was going to happen, um, when they were going to send that bill to President Kennedy, when Kennedy was going to sign it, and then and come back to Brooks, and and so he recognized that, and so did a lot of the other people who are bureaucrats or others that wanted to do things only one way. He recognized that the more you understood how Congress worked, the more effective you would be, and that's it. You know, with the whole thing, whether it was. Some of his accomplishments were, you would think, that not flashy. They weren't, you know, Newt Gingrich trying to get up and get a name for himself and speaking to an empty House of Representatives just so that he could have some TV time. But Brooks was able to say, to look at things and say, what do people need? And so he went after things as mundane as light bulbs. <laughs> like light bulbs are something that it's so commonplace. And yet he realized at some point that the way they were made was to absolutely burn out quickly. And so he went to a and went to the GE and said, here's what you could do. You, the uh, technology is available. He also, you know, did other infrastructure uh, products. It's like IBM uh, and said, why are we leasing computers at this enormous cost? Why don't we buy them? <laughs> and so he did. Uh, and same thing with Westinghouse or with the uh, Boeing and the FAA. Uh, those kind of changes that whether it was airline safety or other products, he said, why don't we do it that makes more sense for the government to be paying? Um, and so so that's why he was he was also feared when people went up to his committee and then he would ask very blunt questions. Uh, and one of the uh, Afterwards, uh, he told some of his staff, they 
because they heard these heads of businesses and saying that Brooks, that SOB, and and Brooks to his staff just smiled. He says, well, what they mean is sweet old Brooks. <laughs> yes, yes. Yeah, the, the light bulb incident was a was a good one. Um, I'll give reader uh, listeners a preview. Um, essentially, you had three or four firms that were making light bulbs in the country at that time, and they created a planned obsolescence. Bulbs would only burn for 750 hours and then would go kaput. And there was no reason that it had to be that way. It just encouraged more people to spend more money on light bulbs. And Brooks called them out on it, and they didn't have a defensible answer. And by training that attention upon them, you know, it was an element of just shaming them into improving their behavior. Let me get my next question. Brooks had a long career. And he did an enormous amount during that time on Capitol Hill. In your estimate, what were his greatest legislative achievements? If you could just pick a couple. Well, I think his involvement with the Civil Rights Act, as I mentioned before, that certainly um, was something that that uh, he would be very proud of. Not signing the Southern Manifesto um, uh, that would encourage segregation. So that took that took courage, uh, and he he had that. He um, like I said, with large scale infrastructure products or or projects um, in Beaumont and uh, elsewhere in southeastern Texas. He also was the he was the one vote that. Um, allowed the International Space Station to continue. It came down to one single vote, and Brooks cast it to continue the space station. He also had some controversy. When, when he was uh, on, the, he's on the Judiciary Committee and, and uh, ultimately became chairman of it, but during the Nixon hearings, he told uh, his uh, fellow legislators that the only decision that they really had to make with Nixon was whether to shoot him or hang him. <laughs> and, and, and there was another time when he was talking to people in his district. And in the Marine Corps, he had been his last one uh, station was in China because they were going to invade Japan, and they knew there were going to be enormous casualties. And so he was very much for the atomic dropping of the atomic bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And during this one uh, press conference, his, he said, oh, Truman should have dropped three bombs. And, and they were, I mean, it was controversial. It didn't get that there was a TV crew but they had just turned off the camera and to his to his aides great relief <laughs> but but he was uh, insistent that he said saved tens of thousands of american lives and he was for it so he didn't shy from controversy when when um, oliver north testified now oliver north had become a you know a a uh, symbolic of uh, rectitude and and uh, when he was being questioned and all that by the uh, by other members of the of the committee and and then when it came time for brooks's question he laid into him he he was he also had been a marine colonel and he wasn't going to take any guff or that kind of false um, modesty and so he and 
uh, laid into North. And it was not until then that the tur it turned that a lot of the other members of Congress um, began to question whether North was actually as patriotic as he wanted to, patri to uh, paint himself. Yes, Brooks was remarkable in, in, in so many ways. I mean, as we noted earlier, that he was a guy who very much believed in delivering tangible benefits to his voters and to the American public generally. But that doesn't mean he was, um, you know, a big spending liberal. In fact, much of his career, he spent, you know, acting as kind of a watchdog over government spending. So that, you know, is unusual today. We too often hear conversations where, you know, a member is described as a liberal and they just don't care about, you know, waste, fraud and abuse, or they're, you know, a tightwad legislator who don't want to spend anything on the poor or anything. And Brooks showed that you, you can do both and you can do them well. I just want to circle back for my last question on the issue of Brooks' meanness within Congress. Clearly, he was well-liked, both by voters and many um, other members. And he was also feared, particularly by people in the executive branch who ended up in his crosshairs. Was his meanness different from the type of meanness that we see in Congress today? Yeah, I, and I think that when we're trying to decide on the title and subtitle of the book, it was a question that we had to kind of address. And when we think of meanness today, it's a very personal, again, Newt Gingrich kind of attacks on people where I would, one of the, uh, another word that we think, that we question whether we should use the toughest man in Congress, because that was really his reputation. Even though they called him the meanest man, the intention was to say, you know, he is not going to take guff from anybody uh, and that he will, you know, question people. He will make sure that that other uh, legislators are held to account. And so that was something that, you know, that it's a different kind of context that people use the word now. Yes, his his meanness seemed to be closely related to the issue of government accountability, not as a you know kind of gratuitous vehicle for you know raising one's own brand. Uh, interestingly enough, and I shall close with this: as a legislator, he frequently did not try to draw media attention. Rather, he kept stuff that he was working on low salience until he felt that he needed some outside attention that would perhaps help him get something over the line. Yep, you're absolutely right. That's ex exactly a good way of, of uh, describing it. Timothy J. McNulty, thank you for telling us about the meanest man in Congress, who is also one of the most consequential legislators in our republic's history. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to Understanding Congress, a podcast of the American Enterprise Institute. This program was produced by Mikkel Good and hosted by Kevin Kosar. You can subscribe to Understanding Congress via Stitcher, iTunes, Google Podcasts, and TuneIn. We hope you will share this podcast with others and tell us what you think about it by posting your thoughts and questions on Twitter and tagging at AEI. We hope you have a great day.